I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Welcome to The Tonight Show. Childcare is set to get a boost in tomorrow's budget, but will it be the bonanza that everyone is hoping for? Fianna Fáil TD Dara Caleri, Labour Senator Rebecca Moynihan and Fine Gael TD Richard Bruton will join Director of Policy with Early Childhood Ireland Francis Byrne with a look ahead to Budget 2022. Foreign Affairs Minister Simon Coveney has accused the UK of shifting the playing field away from solving issues with the Northern Ireland Protocol. Politico Europe journalist Suzanne Lynch joins us with the latest and later used car prices are now nearly 50% higher than they were just before the onset of the pandemic in January of 2020, according to a new report. Motoring journalist with the Sunday Independent, Geraldine Herbert, and Brian Cook, Director General of the Society of the Irish Motor Industry, will be here to discuss. Get in touch on Twitter on our hashtag TonightVMTV. Tonight, Garthi investigating the disappearance of Deirdre Jacob and other women who went missing in Leinster over 20 years ago said a new search has begun because of unusual activity noticed on the evening she disappeared. A little earlier, I spoke to our crime and courts correspondent Sarah O'Connor and I began by asking her about the very latest in this investigation. Well, Claire, this is a really significant development in the ongoing investigation into the murder of Deirdre Jacob and potentially in relation to the investigation of the disappearance of a number of women in the Leinster area in the 90s. Uh, but this search today in Taggartstown, in uh, County Kildare, a four-acre site, it specifically relates to the investigation into the murder of Deirdre Jacob. They are ultimately looking for her remains. And just a reminder about Deirdre Jacob, she was 18, uh, a teacher training student when she went missing in the on the afternoon, around three o'clock in the afternoon. She was last seen on the grass verge across from her home in Newbridge in County Kildare, missing without trace. There have been multiple, uh, multiple appeals by the Gardaí and her family. The serious crime review team took it over. It was then upgraded to a murder inquiry and also of course one of those missing women is, is Jojo Dollard who was just 21 when she disappeared in 1995 and that's also been upgraded to a murder inquiry and Gardaí have said that they're mindful that where Jojo Dollard went missing which is in Moon County Kildare in 1995 that that's just 15 kilometres from this search site where Deirdre, Deirdre Jacob uh, went missing is uh, Newbridge 20 kilometres from this search site and a person of interest in those investigations is Larry Murphy from Bolting Glass in County Wicklow, who served 10 and a half years after he was convicted of raping, uh, attempting to murder and abducting a woman 
in the Wicklow Mountains. He's, he was from Baltinglass in County Wicklow and of course that's just 18 kilometres from this search site in Taggartstown in County Kildare. And what triggered this search today and it's going to go on for a number of weeks is uh, a review of witness statements, specifically a statement uh, that was taken some time ago but it's of more relevance now apparently and that person stated that they saw uh, or noticed unusual or suspicious activity uh, in the area of this woodland in Taggartstown on the night that Deirdre Jacob went missing. And we'll, we'll hear a clip from Inspector John Fitzgerald from Kildare Guard Station now. Yeah, there was unusual activity noticed at the woodland uh, in or around the time Deirdre went missing. And based on that, uh, we felt, felt it prudent to commence a, a thorough search of the area here. Yeah, yeah the, the, the area has been under review for some time. We have carried out a, a, a cursory search initially some time ago um, and then the recommendation was to commence a search in October uh, based uh, to give us the best chance of having their success based on the fact that it's thick woodland there's a lot of undergrowth there and uh, the time of year give us the best opportunity to, to gather any evidence that may may be here yeah the, the family are aware that the search has taken place and obviously it's a difficult time for them and uh, I suppose they're they're foremost in our thoughts and they're they're motivating us to do a good job here today now, Sarah, this major operation began today. How long are investigators expected to stay on the site? Yeah, so up to 15 officers are going to be searching daily uh, in the area, the four-acre four site uh, of woodland and land in Taggartstown. And it's expected to go on for up to three to four weeks, potentially. Um, and again, John Fitzgerald, Inspector John Fitzgerald, saying that he's mindful of the location of the area, that it's just located 15 kilometres from where Jojo Dullard went missing in Moon uh, in 1995. And uh, during the, this search, they will have an excavator on site. They'll also have a forensic archaeologist on site, Dr. Neve McCullough. They'll have Garthi from the Technical Bureau on site. So that they will comb that uh, really thoroughly and hope to find human remains, clothing or any evidence that could lead to progress in the investigation into the murder of Deirdre Jacob and potentially others. Okay, Sarah, thank you for that update tonight. Now, joining me here in studio to preview Budget 2022 is Fianna Fáil TD Dara Cleary, Labour Senator Rebecca Moynihan, Fine Gael TD Richard Bruton and via Skype tonight by Francis Byrne, Director of Policy with Early Childhood Ireland. And I want to come to you, Francis, because there's a lot of flag flying around the issue of childcare and what's going to come about and what's going to be announced tomorrow. We're hearing a universal payment um, up to age children um, up to the age of 15 that their parents will receive that for childcare and state investment for providers in return for a creche price freeze for parents. What do you think of what's being hinted at? Well, it's certainly welcome to see greater investment happening. Um, we're way behind uh, most other European Union countries, so that's very, very welcome. Early Childhood Ireland has always, um, since the Affordable Child Care Scheme, which is now the National Child Care Scheme, uh, was first mooted, we've always said that it could be the beginnings of the Scandinavian model here, which essentially means that everybody pays something but that there is both a floor and a ceiling. So what that means is that the poorest pay less, but even the wealthiest have a limit on how much they pay. And the state is essentially contributing most of the money that pays for early years of school age care in those countries. 
The other very positive thing about Scandinavian childcare is that regardless of the circumstances of a family, be it their income, be it the abilities of children, be it the location of the family, that everybody is receiving, every child is receiving the same uh, quality care regardless of the circumstances. So the fact that if tomorrow um, Ireland is making more progress down that road, that's very welcome. I suppose it would be responsible to all of us to point out that um, notwithstanding great investment that was made by the last government over 100% of an increase, we're still at a very low base um, across the OECD and the European Union in terms of how much we invest. So a great, greater injection of public investment into quality early years and school age care tomorrow is very welcome. Uh, we'd be delighted to see it, but Early Childhood Ireland has looked for uh, greater investment and for a plan to see how Ireland is going to keep the promise that the current government and the previous government has made, which is to double, double investment by 2028. So what we don't want is a bonanza on a one-off basis tomorrow, and then childcare is left until the next time there's good news um, in terms of the exchequer, we need to see a plan. We need to see the government. We need to hear the government saying that it will keep its promise to honour that commitment to double investment, and then we will be able to see the certainty that children need, that their parents need, that staff need, and that providers need. And tell us, Francis, about the staffing crisis that's there, because that's one of the big issues, and um, the childcare providers have keeping staff, paying them enough in order that they will stay and provide the service that's so badly needed. Yes, it's a big issue in Ireland. So we have a combination of low pay and, of course, staff turnover rates are high, naturally enough. And um, what's remarkable about the 31,000 people who work in the sector is that despite that, uh, thousands of them attend um, CPD, they return to college on their own time. It's a hugely committed professional workforce and one that is becoming more and more qualified every year. But again, because of the low investment, um, we have um, a scenario where the pay is low um, and that feeds into other issues and problems. It's also a symptom of um, underinvestment, absolutely, but it's also a symptom of the way the system is set up. So what we're hearing from members at the moment is parents are looking at returning to work on a hybrid basis, uh, for example, and providers would love to be able to offer uh, parents uh, flexibility. But the way that the system is set up at the moment, there is a knock-on effect if um, a provider is able to say, okay, I can... Um, allow uh, sure. Tuesdays and Thursdays uh, a four-year-old doesn't come uh, all day or whatever the scenario might be. But that immediately um, has a knock-on effect, not just on finance, but also on the numbers of staff that somebody is allowed okay. to employ. So we have everything in a very complicated system. And in the Scandinavian system, yeah. things like that don't okay. happen. The investment is in quality. Okay. 
um, and in the staff. In and that's how you deliver a worthwhile system. OK, uh, that provides the flexibility that everyone needs. Um, Richard Bruton, I want to bring you in here. Has this been high enough on the government agenda to date? Like, we've known that childcare has been a huge issue for families up and down the country. The cost of it alone is crippling. It's stark. It's unbelievable. I mean, Leah Radker talked there about it being a second mortgage to people. It's that and then some, isn't it? Absolutely. So, um, uh, I mean, why hasn't it been addressed to date? And is what we're going to hear tomorrow going to go far enough? Well, I suppose to, to put it in context, as Francis said, uh, First Five was introduced by the last government and the spending was increased by, what, 150% nearly. But the truth is that the sector is seriously underdeveloped. Uh, we did a policy lab involving nearly 3,000 people and we got great insight. Staff frustrated, as Francis said, parents under tremendous pressure, not able to get the service they needed, mm -hmm. and providers struggling to, to cope. So there's, there is need for a long-term development strategy that's there. And in the programme for government, there's a commitment to a childcare development authority. So it's not just improving the subsidy schemes, which are really important, and we hear that tomorrow there is going to be improvement in that. It's also that longer-term strategy to build up the capacity to deliver, to give a proper career structure for those who are working in the sector and to fill the huge gaps that are there. So this is going to take not one budget. I think, as Francis indicated, we do need a strategy here over a long period. And we, we've created, through this policy lab work, a, a blueprint of how we think it should be done. Like, are you looking towards a public childcare model? Well, I think we're, we're always going to have a mixed model uh, because at the that? moment, well, at the moment it's all, none of it is state run. It's a mixture of community and private. And I think that is the way that it has evolved. And to try to pull the mat under that to try and replace it would be very, very difficult. So I think what you do is you build off that. You create particularly community-based uh, services in critical areas uh, and you, you develop a much wider range of services. But that will take time and it will have to be built okay. county by county. Um, Rebecca Moynihan, you can't pull the mat under the current uh, situation that's in place, which is a mix of, of private and community-based childcare. Do you accept that? Um, I think that's understandable in the short term, but in the long term, I think we should be moving to a state model of universal childcare that is affordable and accessible. And I agree with what Richard says. I think more investment in the community model, for example, uh, would be very, very welcome. And I think that's where we're lacking. Uh, you don't want to see a situation where you have childcare providers closed down. I think you also have to acknowledge that private childcare providers offer, uh, you know, put a huge amount of effort as well in, in, into running it. But we do need to be moving to a model. And as my colleague, Anna Batrick said during her by-election campaign, a Donut O'Malley moment for childcare. I think the extension of the ECI scheme um, has been very welcome and certainly um, the indications coming from government are welcome, but it's not enough and it is a longer term strategy. And I do think that we should be moving towards a public accessible childcare model the same way we do with primary schools and looking at it as early, early education. Tara, we're not going to get that done O'Malley moment, are we, though? This is really tinkering at the edges. I mean, the, the investment, 100 million euros spend uh, in 2022, rising to 200 million in 2023. But at the same time, like you're freezing, you're saying, you know, there's an incentive there to freeze creche fees, but they're not coming down anytime soon. They're not. Uh, we could do it at Don O'Malley moment in so many areas, but I think Fianna Fáil's priorities in childcare are fairness for the staff, for that 31,000 people who are doing such a superb job, affordability for parents, and sustainability and certainty for the operators, because the funding model um, is done on a current year-to-year -year basis. You cannot plan staff or staff development or costs on that. That needs to be put on the certainty for the staff who are doing such wonderful work. They need certainty. And parents need affordability. There is an expert group 
Group that has been established by Roderick O'Gorman. That's going to report on funding models in November next month aligned with tomorrow's investment but we also need to look at the rules so the rules around um, the early childhood subsidy which um, discriminates against part-time places uh, as Francis just pointed out there the rules around that are making it unsustainable so um, I think one adult for three in a baby room has closed a lot of baby rooms mm -hmm. closing that off that option so there's so many things that need to be done and we start with the expert group start with the extra investment tomorrow the expert group in November and we are moving towards a very different model which will be a hybrid um, but as you said you, now when you're saying a hybrid with what community do you mean by that? and private um, but we also need to guarantee places because there's many parents who cannot find a place. Um, they, you know, we've heard reports right across the country in the last number of weeks, people looking for places in 2022, 2023 can't get them. All right, okay. Um, do you think, I mean, we're hearing a, a lot of promises here and, and an acceptance that we need to look at what's not working. Um, do you buy that, Rebecca? I want to, <laughs> because I think like everybody in this country, we want to ensure that we have an affordable, accessible childcare model. Um, and for too long, and I think everybody knocking on doors or talking to people or talking to families understands the huge frustration that is out there with it. I do think that we need to be moving towards a state-led system. I think that's really important. And we had a state-led system like in place. Like, for example, organisations such as the ETBs or what were the VCs used to have questions attached to them. So we have provided that in the past and we need to be moving to a state-led system. what happened there? Funding. Funding closed some of them down. Some okay. of them are still operating. We are moving yeah. that way because we're funding through this particular employment wage subsidy scheme for childcare. That's 34 million a month. That is going specifically into salaries and we need to increase that model into salaries so that the staff have certainty, the operators have certainty that they will have their staff and the staff will be encouraged to remain within the sector. Um, and I think it increased there um, alongside uh, more supports for the actual costs can keep the costs and reduce the costs. Yeah. Ultimately, we need to reduce costs. And Paying 2,000 a month for childcare it, it's, is utterly yeah, unfair. Yeah, and you know what? It was mentioned by Francis Byrne, this issue around the creches at the moment in many places because of this um, lack of places, they're not offering part-time hours to parents. So your choice is you send your child in at seven in the morning till six in the evening, you have to pay. You know, one case I heard today, uh, 1,250 euro for one child. That's There's a no choice. Yeah. Even if you as parents have reduced your hours, you can do flexi time, you can work a bit from home, you can make it work from you. The system isn't working for the parents. That's one of the conditions of the childcare funding and the early childcare subsidy. It, it, has, so, it has that built within it. That needs to be changed So creches will be told, no, you must actually offer part-time hours to parents for their children should they want it? Well, the truth is that there's huge gaps here. It's not just uh, the, the part-time hours. The reality is that an awful lot of providers only provide the 20 hours. So people who want to have full week's care, they just can't get it in some parts of, the, of this country. So we really need to develop not just uh, the, the issue of, you know, where there's three days wanted, but also the fact that uh, sometimes only the five hours a day is all that's offered. Uh, and really, we need to yeah. see a, a more comprehensive range of services. And you know, term, outside of yeah. term time, uh, yeah. often it's really, really difficult to, to, to get support. To go back to a point that was made again by Francis earlier, just about the OECD spend, 
Like, is it not embarrassing that we are bottom of the table when it comes to investment in childcare in this country? You know, you know that's, 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 that's the reality. At. I mean, but that's Ireland the reality. spent 0.1% yeah. up until last year. And when it looks at final figures, it'll be 0.2% of GDP. It's an incredibly tiny amount. When, when we, you know, and the government would say, we want to get parents back to work. We need it. We want it for the economy. We want to make it work for everyone. We want to make this a good country for families. Yeah, no, I mean, I'm in politics a long time. And simply, you know, for many years, childcare was not on any government's agenda. Why not? Uh, and, all sorts of historic reasons going back to, you know, the role of the church, the attitude of society. Uh, you know, there was huge changes have occurred and the system didn't so no keep one up. Cared. No, people didn't keep up with the changes that were happening in society. And we suddenly, uh, you know, realised that there was this massive gap. But to be fair, you know, the first five was a 10 year strategy. It's the first time there was a strategy set out by a government uh, for the sector. And I think that was a really important step forward. But, you know, there, it's after years of neglect to be honest. Is um, and, and the debate in childcare, I know it's one that's going to go on and on, even when we hear details tomorrow. There I will think it's be a key issue for this government. It, 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 that, that will be clear tomorrow, but it'll also be clear in November with the expert rep uh, group report. Roger Gorman yeah. has huge support uh, within Fianna Fáil to try and achieve a sea change in childcare, as I said, based on affordability, yeah. based on fairness and based on Okay, Dara, I just want to bring in, someone's tweeted saying, we've been debating childcare um, since uh, this person's daughter was born. She's now 28. How long have we been talking about childcare? care costs, another person says, 20 years now. I mean, is it acceptable what Richard said, that it wasn't on the agenda because of issues around, um, I don't know, our views and the church and other matters? No, it's not. And it has been debated for a really long time. But, but I think there was an important point made there in terms of the inconsistency. Some providers um, offering only full-time hours, other providers not being able to go, go above 20. Can you imagine a situation where a school says, we're closing at 12 o'clock every day? Or can can you imagine a situation where a school says you're going to have to be in until six o'clock every day? We do this in primary school, we do it in secondary school. And that's why we need, need not to be moving to where we have a thousand pieces of a puzzle and independent providers who are making their own rules, but we're moving to a state-led system where there's consistency across the board and flexibility then for parents in that. Just to look ahead to tomorrow, should we expect surprises? We've heard so much leaked in the way we're just talking about the childcare issue. Five euro for OAPs. Uh, one person said earlier on our news, uh, just about enough to get a cup of tea and a scone. Um, but will there be other um, announcements well, made and surprises? I remember the day when people flagged. were sacked if there was even one hint of what was in the budget mm. coming out. The reality is, you know, that has completely changed. And uh, in and recent everything's years, leaked, is everything's, right? everything in recent, in recent years seems to be leaked. But okay. I'm sure there is some small print that... Uh, will there be has, something? Will there I be? don't know. You don't know? The, I'm not Tara, privy to it you, anyhow. Are you, are you privy to anything? Not particularly, um, but I, I think it's the first budget uh, in our new phase of COVID. We're not out of COVID, where we can actually begin, as Fianna Fáil, to put our stamp on the budgetary process. We have some major priorities, and I'm confident that they will be reflected in the budget with Michael McGrath and Pascal Dunn, who's set up tomorrow. So, okay. Viewer says here, um, just we need a voucher scheme for restaurants and hospitality in the budget. Like there is that big question about how businesses are going to survive and how to entice people. I think there will be certainty given money. in relation to uh, funding for businesses, particularly around wage supports. Um, what we need in hospitality is staff and incentives to get uh, for them to get their staff and encourage and train staff. Um, because unless we resolve the staff crisis facing hospitality, we may not have a hospitality industry.
we have an energy crisis and we are going to have an energy crisis this winter and you look at the 5% that's been um, floated for social welfare mm. and pension and it's a standstill essentially even if they put it on with the rate of inflation and the cost of energy prices this winter. You think winter, one will cancel out the other? One is going to cancel out the other and is going to wipe it out. From that perspective it's a standstill. I'm looking at things in the housing area and for example I really want to see something like a vacant home tax but what I've seen in the papers so far today is actually a decrease in the vacant sites levy from 7% to 3% but revenue are going to collect that and I think that's really problematic if there, it's essentially announced but it decreases from 7% of a vacant sites levy to 3% which is what I've read today. Okay well my thanks to Francis Byrne my studio panel will be staying with us and coming up after the break Politico Europe journalist Suzanne Lynch will join us for the very latest on the Northern Ireland Protocol. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Welcome back. Now, the Minister for Foreign Affairs has said that each time the European Union comes forward with new proposals over the Northern Ireland Protocol, they are dismissed by the UK even before they're published. Well, joining me now is Politico journalist Suzanne Lynch. Suzanne, thanks for joining us tonight. Um, this was pretty unseemly, um, these tweets, uh, this Twitter row that broke out at the weekend between Simon Coveney and David Frost. Tell us about how it all played out and the view there from Brussels on it. Yeah, I think there's been a real ratcheting up of tensions over the last few days and weeks around this whole issue of the Northern Ireland Protocol. In saying that, it is important to say the European Union has a lot of other things on its plate at the moment. It's got a row happening at the moment between the European Commission and Poland. We've had a resignation of the Austrian Prime Minister at the weekend. We had elections in the Czech Republic. So in one sense, Brexit and Northern Ireland is not something that other EU countries really want to think about or talk about. They feel that this is done that that uh, negotiation and those agreements were entered into and we should be moving on. 
in saying that, at the moment, I think they're now the real concern uh, that this issue is now really about to flare up once more. Uh, on Wednesday, we're going to have proposals by the European uh, Commissioner, Marcus Sekovic, about uh, new kind of compromises within the Northern Ireland Protocol to try and ease and soothe concerns from London about how it's working. And on Tuesday, we're going to hear uh, from Lord Frost. He's going to deliver a speech in Lisbon. Uh, he's the UK's Brexit point man, if you like. And um, so there's a real sense here that in the next 48 hours or so, things could really come to a head over this controversy around the Northern Ireland Protocol. Tell us about that speech tomorrow and the significance of it when David Frost, um, the UK's Brexit minister, makes that speech, essentially laying down red lines. Yes, and as Simon Coveney said today, it's a good point. What we seem to be seeing here is a pattern that from the UK side, uh, they are dismissing uh, suggestions even before they have been published. And we're seeing a bit of this uh, over the last few days, a bit of kite flying by London. But we do expect Lord Frost to outline in detail uh, what the UK's red lines are. In particular, one of the big issue, issues now that seems to be emerging is that uh, London wants uh, to uh, get rid of the European Court of Justice oversight and its role uh, in the Northern Ireland Protocol. The EU have said that's not happening, um, that, you know, you need to be in the single market, you need to have the ECJ oversight. So that's going to be one thing to watch for in the speech on Tuesday. Um, and really what we're seeing, I think, from the British government is a sense that they want a root and branch reform of the entire protocol. Here in Brussels, they're saying, no, that's not going to happen. Yes, we will kind of compromise when it comes to within the framework of the Northern Ireland Protocol, but we're not going to open this again. That's what they're saying. Um, so we really seem to be on a collision course uh, between the two sides here, and that's really going to come to a head. And where can it go from here? As you say, two sides, it's, it's really coming to a head now. Is there any path out of it at this point? Well, I think the fear here is that um, Britain may invoke Article 16, effectively suspending parts of the Northern Ireland Protocol. Now, if that was to happen, um, well, then I think we could be looking at, now it would not happen overnight, but we would be looking at the EU taking some kind of retaliatory action. So that really would mean a trade war, uh, really. Um, we, we were going to then have all the EU member states here. They're being briefed on this tomorrow, uh, on the Commission's proposals. And I think what we're going to see is from some of the bigger countries, like France in particular, also Germany, all those countries that have a lot of trade and trade engagement with the UK are going to be looking at, right, what, what can we, what are we prepared to do in terms of hitting the UK in terms of trade? So that could be very serious. It could be very serious for Ireland in particular, considering the deep trade links Ireland has with the UK. But that is where this conversation is going if the UK um, decide to invoke Article 16 and that they're not happy with the Commission's proposals when they're published here on Wednesday. Okay, Suzanne. Suzanne Lynch of Politico, thanks for joining us tonight. And the panel has stayed with us. And I want to come to you first, Richard Bruton, on this matter. Um, it, I mean, it was always serious. It's very serious, really, now. Are we on a collision course um, when we're dealing with this matter around the protocol, seeing the way it's all playing out at the moment and that decisive speech tomorrow by David Frost? Well, I think... The first thing to be said is that uh, the Commissioner Sekovic uh, has made huge effort to listen to Northern Ireland and particularly unionists to identify problems around the veterinary issues, around the medicines issues 
And we understand he's on a point of making a very significant announcement that will ease a lot of those problems. And I think what frustrates people is that uh, Britain seems to be producing a new card out of the pack, which is the, their discontent around the ECJ. That's something that was at the heart of the agreement, that Boris Johnson went around the country pronouncing as a huge deal, much better than the one rejected by Theresa May. I think that's what frustration now is seeping in, that you know, there is a, a game being played mm. here and that you know, the UK wants to keep a battle going. The, the stakes are so high because, you know, let's not, you know, tensions do exist in Northern Ireland. We can see it every day and we do not need uh, game playing to, to yeah. aggravate things. And you mentioned game playing there. Is it right that it should be played out in social media? Did Minister Coveney do the right thing there? Well, I think there's a level of frustration and I think you can hear from Su Suzanne there that it's not just Ireland. There is a widespread so uh, frustration in Europe that they are trying hard to deal with this issue, to it, come with yeah. an agreement that is workable for people in Northern Ireland uh, at, that gets over some of the problems. So that you think it's completely understandable the manner in which it played out, the comments that were made by Simon Coveney over the weekend on Twitter? I, yeah, I think there is, you know, the UK have uh, produced this card out of the pack, uh, which has nothing got to do with the issues that, you know, unionist politicians have been discussing with the Commission. Uh, and that's what I think frustrates people. And, you know, I think to, to, to call that out is the right thing to do, because we can't, the, the stakes are too high to allow it to be jeopardised in that the, the right thing to do, Dara Cleary, is that the way a Fianna Fáil minister um, would uh, address a matter like this? Well, I think uh, from listening to Simon Coveney this morning, he knew that there was going to be a very select briefing to UK papers yesterday morning uh, and he wanted to put the Irish position straight before that happened and before what that became the narrative. What call have worked? Um, just uh, take what he, Simon says. Uh, the government have worked incredibly hard on this and Richard is right. Vice President Sokovic has spent time in Belfast. He's listened to people. The Taoiseach was in Belfast on last Friday, listening and meeting with people. And, you know, we understand there will be a significant announcement on Wednesday. Obviously, if the British, British government have decided to move the goalposts again, um, we have to lay out our position. Um, the ECJ, the European Court of Justice, is not going to make it easier uh, for Northern Irish business to maintain their business mm. and to do their thing. But our priority all along is to ensure that there is no hard border and we have but to defend that. It's reflective of how bad relations are, isn't it, that you have to take to social media to go on back and forth about, about these matters and about these issues at hand. You have to uh, use, use the uh, assets that are available to you and you have to defend your interests. We have to defend the interests of this island. Um, you know, Simon Coveney is a patient person. The government have been incredibly patient around this. Um, and we will continue to be constructive and are open to constructive suggestions uh, around the protocol, around making it work for the people of our island, for the people of Northern Ireland. Um, but they need to be constructive and yeah. they also need to put things on the table. I mean, uh, Rebecca, do you think our patience has just run out here when it comes to how um, Britain is dealing with this protocol and how, how it's working out, given that, you know, the promises were made, we said, yes, we can make this work and now all these new red lines are emerging? 
I, I think the problem is, and I can understand the frustration of Simon Coveney, in that the British government keep on moving the goalposts. Um, and it is much about playing to um, a home audience as it is about making the protocol work, workable within Northern Ireland. The fact of the matter is, the British government did sign up to this. Boris Johnson went around saying that it was a different deal to the one that was negotiated by Theresa May, but it was essentially um, a bit of lipstick on a pig from their perspective. The Brexiteers did not think out what Brexit was going to look at, like. They didn't think out the consequences for the Good Friday Agreement, they didn't think out the consequences for Northern Ireland. And what you have is rather than I think Simon Coveney was very fair and clear this morning, where he said, we will meet and try to negotiate in good faith to see what elements of the protocol aren't working and what we can do to overcome them. What you have from the British government side, from David Frost, and then from the unionist side is an immediate threat to trigger, trigger Article 16, which is not a good way of negotiating. And it doesn't seem to be getting at, trying to get at the real issues, which is good relations between the UK and, um, and Europe while also protecting the Good Friday Agreement. This, this could all be pretty serious for us here, though. I mean, if we're talking about the EU taking retaliatory action to what um, Britain is going to do, should they suspend parts of the protocol, it's going to have fallout here, isn't it, Richard? So what are we going to do about it? Well, you know, there's always a risk in, in an agreement like this that bad politics will upscuttle the best efforts of people to find a way through what is a decision of the British people to withdraw. They are now a third uh, country, they're not a member state, and there are consequences. And people are doing their level best to try and deal with that. Uh, so, yes, if, if Britain moves uh, Article 16, that would be a really serious uh, 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 outcome. And what are we and likely I'd to see should that happen? Well, we don't know at this point. I mean, there would have to be a process of discussion and arbitration and so on. There's, it's, a, it's a very staged process. But to go into that sort of nuclear option where you're trying to defuse bombs is not the way to deal with uh, a, an issue like this. And, you know, the, every effort, as Dara says, has to be made to find a way that people will come to the table to work something out that's workable in the interests of people. Uh, that's what, what, what is there. But bad politics can destroy this, and we know that. Yeah. Uh, we've seen it before. And it wasn't a completely negative day either. Thomas Byrne opened the new facilities in Dunkirk ports today. 44 direct connections from Ireland to France today, where there was only 12 before Brexit. So you know, we are also moving on, and we are all moving on our connections yeah. directly into Europe. And that's what counts for Irish business, for Irish jobs, that we are working our way through. Those this UK well. trade links are very important, though, aren't UK they? UK trade links are hugely important, and our island to UK trade links are very important. And every effort has been made every effort will be made to try and resolve this. But and it is has there a backup be, plan? Um, I have absolutely no doubt there is. I have no doubt there is, but every yeah, effort is going to be made. the government have a backup plan there, when it, it comes has to... Be a two -way. It has to be a two-way process. Uh, good faith has to be a two-way process. Good faith has to be put on the table from the UK government as well. And maybe Boris will get inspiration from his Spanish holiday uh, to put good faith back on the table between all sides in this. Okay. Michal Martin is willing to do it, Simon Coveney is, doing it, is going, willing to do it, and Vice Commissioner... Do we need direct President talks Shostak. here? Do we need Simon Coveney to sit down um, with Boris Johnson? And there is a process which has worked very well with the European Commission uh, and the UK. Well, it uh, hasn't really. Very like, when, you look, when you look at how this has all played out this weekend, um, if we think we, we were getting anywhere and anything was going well with the protocol, it I clearly think isn't. are best represented, and they have been to date since 2016 by working through the European Commission. The Taoiseach is more than available uh, to make whatever intervention he wants to, 
but that will be working as a collective with the European Commission. Okay. Does, do you think there needs to be direct intervention to, to resolve this latest spat, or should we leave it up to uh, working it out through Europe? Well, yeah, well, well, I certainly think, you know, pre-Brexit or, or proper Brexit, an agreement um, with the meeting between Boris Johnson and Leo Varadkar was successful and it broke a logjam. I, um, as I said before, I share the frustrations of the Irish government and Simon Coveney because it's very difficult to deal with another side who keep on throwing obstacles in the way even after they have agreed to sign up to something themselves. I don't think that the Brexiteers or the Conservative Party government had properly thought out what a Brexit would look like. I don't think they thought out what that was going to involve and I don't think they thought out the responsibilities that they had to Northern Ireland. It seems insane to me when you're looking at food shortages and petrol queues um, in England that unionists in Northern Ireland will go want to go down the same line and have something very similar yeah. for themselves the, in Northern this Ireland. This is the thing, like, isn't it just briefly, Richard, about the sale here? Like that the protocol is actually working. Like it's good for the people of Northern Ireland. It's good for the island of Ireland, and that there needs to be more done on behalf of the government here in order to show that you know what the system we have in place is actually good. Well, I think what, what a lot of people found very surprising was David Frost last week uh, saying, isn't it very worrying that trade north-south is increasing dramatically uh, and that this is something we need to uh, intervene to disrupt? That was essentially what he said during mm. the week. It was quite bizarre. Uh, no, but you know, ultimately, we have to get uh, a settlement here. And like Simon Coveney and the Irish government from the Taoiseach down will move might and main to fix it. But it is Europe who is negotiating with Britain. And we can't pretend that it's a bilateral deal, this. OK, we'll leave it there. My thanks to Dara, Rebecca and Richard. And after the break, used car prices surge by nearly 50%. Motoring journalist Geraldine Herbert will tell us why. Welcome back. Now, used car prices are now nearly 50% higher than they were just before the onset of the pandemic in January of 2020, according to a new report by online marketplace Dundeal.ie. But joining me now is motoring journalist Geraldine Herbert and Director General of the Society of the Irish Motor Industry, Brian Cook. You're both very welcome along to the programme. Ger, why are prices rising when it comes to used car prices? Is there value still to be had out there? There is, but there's just it's a combination of factors at the moment, Claire. There's a problem with new car supply. There's these little chips that are used in everything from consumer electronics to your toaster are in short supply at the moment, so that's causing new cars to not get off the production line when they should. Brexit is having an impact on imports that are much more expensive to import than they were before, so much less attractive. And then we don't have the higher cars and the fleet cars coming into the market that we would have had because there was basically no higher car market last year. So it's a culmination of events, but for example now, the, Brexit, the, the, import, the, the issue with importing mm. cars, these would be used cars that people were actually getting good value when they, when they came over here, great spec and, and better value than they might get otherwise. Yeah, I mean, pre-pandemic, we would see about maybe 100,000 imports coming into the country. Now, obviously, there's VAT on Brexit imports. There's also, because of Brexit on imports, there's also custom um, duties on some of them. Now, in addition, Claire, the UK market is obviously rising as well. They're second-hand cars, so it's becoming less and less attractive to actually import a car. 
Okay, what are your concerns in the motoring industry about what you're seeing happening when it comes to those rising prices and that big supply and demand issue, Brian? Well, obviously, to supply vehicles, um, dealers put a big investment in their in their premises, um, and they need volume to to you know to cover their fixed costs. So, so there is a concern. Uh, the new car market has actually underperformed not just for the last two years, but probably for the last 13 years. Uh, and the new car market is where they generally speak and generate their used car supply via trade-ins. Um, so the UK market, the UK import market, had actually plugged some of that gap between, particularly in 2017 to 2019, and that market isn't there anymore. So, so, so dealers are hungry for cars. So if you actually have a second-hand car and you're thinking of trading it in, there, there's real value, so you will get good value for your trade-in. Okay. And your cost to change, even though the car you're buying might be more expensive than it was a year ago, the value in your own car will be also more expensive. So your cost to change is probably pretty similar. OK, well, one viewer has said that she's selling her 2016 SUV and she only got two calls about it. She's not talking to the right people, Claire, because there's a huge demand out there, particularly for SUVs. I mean, there are certain cars that are going to do better than others. Popular models, you know, hatchbacks, your bread and butter um, cars like your Fiesta, your Focus, your Astra, your Golf, they'll always do well. But the market for SUVs is huge. So. And it doesn't matter. You're not looking at cars that are, say, two or three years old as distinct from this is now, um, you know, a five-year-old car. Are people um, still in the market for slightly older cars that they would have got better value on in the past? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, all all cars, all second-hand cars are increasing at the moment. I mean, that's the good news. I suppose it depends, though, what you're selling and what you're buying, whether or not the increases on both will cancel out and whether or not you get good value. So you have to be, you know, a yeah. bit discerning that's about it. That's a big thing, though, isn't it? Like, good value when it comes to cars. And we're looking at the whole green agenda and what we need to do and, and, and look what the government needs to do to incentivise people to buy uh, green and energy-efficient cars. Is there value to be had out there? Because a lot of people maybe trading in would like to get um, an electric car, but they can't afford it. Well, look, I mean, they are they are expensive, more expensive than fossil fuel cars. But uh, but I mean, there are still like fossil fuel cars today are much greener than they were ten years ago. So so there is value there. But but in Ireland, we have this dreaded vehicle registration tax, and you know it was raised in the budget last year, even on environmentally friendly cars. They removed some of the supports for electric vehicles last year, although I think in fairness to the government they have been very generous with their electric uh, vehicle supports over, over, over the last 10 years. So, so, so we need to see them kept in place and to you know, just increase vehicle registration tax you know, in, the, in the name of climate change when it will be completely counterproductive. It actually it takes the option away from a consumer, a consumer who wants to make a better mm. environmental decision could potentially be asked to pay more tax next year than they are this year. So, so I think the, the price of cars in Ireland, generally speaking, is high because we have vehicle registration tax. They don't have that in the UK. So, so um, that, that's been a drag on new car sales for many yeah. years. Is there a big call in the budget, do you think, that, that needs to be made that, that will make things you know, friendlier for motorists should they wish to go green? Like we're seeing, we're going to see price rises at the pumps from tomorrow midnight, mm. aren't we, under the new carbon tax? So what, what sort of incentives do you think will be kind of on the government agenda or should be? I don't think there's going to be much for the motorists, to be honest, tomorrow, um, Claire. But what I'd like to see, and I think what most motorists would like to see, is that the, the supports for electric cars stay in place because people need to plan and they might be in a position to buy an electric car this year, but they'd like to know when they buy one next year that those grants are still in place. So I think they need a plan. They need to have reassurance and to know. How much are the grants worth, you know, in terms of when you're, when the incentives, are, are they big? Are they, do they make the, buying that green car all the more they, uh, they likely? 
Yeah, they certainly do in the popular models. We see the top five um, bestsellers are the ones benefiting from the full grants, which would be 5,000 from the SEAI and 5,000 VRT relief. So that's a substantial chunk off the cost of the car. We also see, I mean, there's, there's generous supports in terms of um, there's an electric charging grant, there's reduced tolls. So, I mean, the grants are there, but they need to stay there or the momentum will be lost. Yeah. Uh, and just about those issues and around the, the supply and demand issues, do you think this is a short-term problem? We talked about, you know, Brexit and other, you know, uh, other matters playing into it all, but do you think that, that, that we're going to see you know, more cars on the market this time next year or in the next few months? Well, I, I think next year is going to be a challenge. I think Geraldine's already referred to the production and semiconductor issues, so new car supply is actually going to be constrained next year. In relation to used imports, there is no solution, it seems, to the Brexit, to the Brexit conundrum. There are increased taxes, there are increased tariffs, and they're going to remain. So what we really need to see is it's, it's only the new car market that can actually feed the Irish used car market over the next decade. And we have seen in the past the new car market can jump up and can jump down, but it can jump up significantly over a two or three year period. So I think the aim is that government policy should underpin the new car market for the next four or five years, particularly in relation to electric vehicles. And that's the only way we can actually, you know, increase the number of newer, cleaner cars on the road. And it's the only way we can actually create an active used car market that everybody can actually participate in. And your advice, Chair, if somebody's looking to trade in or trade up, what should they do right now? Because obviously if you're trying to sell your car, you might get good money for it, but then you're trying to buy a used car and you're going to pay for that too. It's not going to change anytime soon, Claire. So now is as good a time as any to trade in. Okay, well, that's good advice. I take it you'd agree, Brian? Yeah, well, it's always a good time to shop in a motor retailer. So, uh, <laughs> you know, there's no, there's no time like the present. Well, particularly, like, uh, particularly I mean, the, the new car market, they're already taking pre-orders for, for next January. So, um, so, so there is an active new car market out there already for next year. So, so go in and shop around, shop online or shop in a dealership. Okay, good to know. And that is it from us. Um, my thanks to Brian and to Geraldine Herbert. And our programme is available as a podcast. Our next news is on Ireland AM tomorrow morning. The Minister for Public Expenditure and Reform, Michael McGrath, will be here tomorrow night for reaction to Budget 2022. But from all the late team for now, good night. Take care. is a Virgin Media Originals podcast series. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health Right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.